We have an absolutely great section that we're going to study this morning. It, it, it really gives us a great understanding of Paul's perspective on ministry and on suffering. Uh, if you would turn in your Bibles to the letter of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if you're grabbing a Bible in front of you, page 1227, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. One of the great things that Paul wants to say, and, and it's so appropriate for us today as well. But notice how he opens this chapter in verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. If sometimes if you just study in the New Testament and go through and look, that you'll find that it gives you six things about which we're not to lose heart. Six things that we need to view appropriately that are going to keep us from that. One is we're not going to lose heart in prayer. Uh, another one is we're not going to lose heart in the struggle of an aging body and a child-filled life. Uh, the third one is that we would not lose heart in well-doing or in suffering, in the race of life, and finally in criticism of your Christian walk. Now we have two of those in the section that we're going to deal with today. And we're going to run into it in verse 1 and in verse 16. But it's all about having a resolute heart. And by that mean a heart that refuses to give up or to give in. In his best-selling book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey identifies the second habit this way. Begin with the end in mind. And so he writes this, to begin with the end in mind means to start with a clear understanding of your destination. It means to know where you're going so that you better understand where you are now and so that the steps you take are always in the right direction. My mind immediately went to that when I looked at this passage because, you see, the Apostle Paul never lost sight of his destination. It shaped his thinking. It shaped his ministry. It shaped his relationships. It, it shaped his decisions. It shaped the whole of his life. He knew where he was going. He knew what his destination was, and that shaped everything. Now, I want to reshape Covey's habit here, if I may, and, and suggest that the most important thing for you in your walk with Christ is this. Live with the end in mind. Live with the end in mind. Now let's look at the specific situation that Paul gives us in this letter to the Corinthians. And let's see the principle that he talks about. And then we'll talk about how it applies to you and to me here in the 21st century. Paul's been talking in this letter about facing the opponents to his ministry. And these false teachers were trying to draw the Corinthians away from him and from his teaching. And so they, they raised all kinds of issues. They introduced a, a gospel of legalism. We looked at that last week. They tried to discredit Paul and his ministry, discredit his apostleship and everything that he was doing with them. But the thing with Paul is he stood fast with a resolute heart. Uh, last week, we saw how he contrasted his ministry, a, a ministry that was grounded in the grace of the new covenant, with the ministry of these legalizers, the Judaizers, who were promoting a false gospel, a law-keeping uh, ministry grounded in the works of the old covenant. 
And Paul stands with a resolute heart against these false teachers with their false accusations and their heretical doctrine. And there are four reasons that we're going to see in this passage why Paul maintained a resolute heart. And those four things are the same things that need to be a part of your thinking and life for you and for me to have a resolute heart. The first one is this. He had a glorious ministry. I'm going to pick up and read again, starting at verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, which is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, chapter 4 opens with the word that forces us backward in our thinking. Whenever you're reading scripture and you come to the word therefore, you need to ask, but therefore is therefore. What that does is it throws you back to something that he's just talked about. What he talked about, and we looked at it last week, was a ministry, an amazing ministry. First of all, it's a ministry of the Spirit, he says, as opposed to the ministry of law. It's a ministry of glory as opposed to a ministry of death. And it's a ministry of righteousness as opposed to a ministry of condemnation. That's why we saw that the ministry that Paul had, the glory of the new covenant, so far surpassed the glory of the old. And why this is a greater ministry. And this perspective of ministry had some very practical implications in Paul's life. First of all, it kept him from giving up. He wasn't going to quit. He didn't lose heart. He didn't throw in the towel. Think about this. Think of all the reasons why Paul might have given up. Why he might have just thrown in the towel and said, I'm done with you guys. They were fighting Paul. They were they're pushing away from Paul. They were accusing Paul of, of base motives, of misusing money, all of these things. But Paul would not quit. Second, it kept him from being a deceiver. Paul refused to become like his accusers who tampered with the word of God, who twisted it so that it would serve their purposes. And he said, I don't do that, and I won't do that. Now, he does acknowledge that there are those who just could not understand the gospel and the truth of that. The reason, he says, is because their minds are blinded, that there's a veil that's over them by the evil one. And I think this helps us to understand why some don't respond to the gospel today. They can't see. Their eyes are blinded and their hearts are veiled. It reminds us that the Spirit of God must work in the hearts of those who do not know God. Uh, that God would remove that veil of unbelief. That they would have that aha moment and all of a sudden they would see the gospel, the good news of Jesus, what he did for them, and they would come to faith and believe. And so we need to ask that God would do that in the lives of those that we're praying for, that they would come to faith and understanding, that God would remove the veil that's over their hearts. 
Apart from that, they remain in spiritual darkness, unable to see, unable to understand, unable to comprehend. So we need to enter into the realm of spiritual warfare with people and engage God and ask him to do his work there. I think it's why Paul distinguishes himself from these false teachers. They were out proclaiming themselves. They had the letters of commendation about themselves. And Paul says this, I only preach Jesus as Lord. That was his message. Now, the second reason why Paul had a resolute heart was this. He had a valuable treasure. Let's pick up in the text at verse 7. Paul writes, but we have this treasure in jars of clay, very common jars in that day of storing stuff. But it's a treasure we have in these jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Now from the context, this treasure is the gospel of Christ. It's the goodness of God's redemptive work. Now this image, and again, you can take this image of the vessel, and it goes all through the scriptures. Um, but I think there are some practical implications as we apply this to ourselves. When we think about the fact that we are jars of clay, ordinary vessels. But let me suggest some things to you. First of all is this, God made you who you are to do the work he's given you to do. God wants to use you because of who you are. You don't have to be somebody else. You don't have to be Billy Graham. You don't have to be Bo Bright. You don't have to be You be yourself because God made you that way. When Paul writes to the Ephesians, he says this, very familiar couple of verses, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And we, sometimes we say that, but we forget the, the follow-on because the very next word in the text is what? For, here's a reason, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God made you who you are to do the work that he gives you to do. Second is that God takes delight in transforming sinful people into vessels fit for his use. It thrills God to be at work in your life, that he might then work through you. Paul gave his own experience as an illustration he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 and says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, this was my experience. I want you to know that God delights in taking sinful jars of clay and makes them usable. But here's the key. The vessel must be clean and it must be usable. Look what Paul writes to his fellow worker in ministry, Timothy. He says, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. 
some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Vance Havner was an old country preacher, and he always used to say, you don't need to pray, Lord, use me. He said, you get usable, the Lord will wear you out. Usable, we have to be usable. Um, There's a divine purpose that's behind us. There's a divine reason why God uses jars of clay with this treasure. Look at verse 7 again. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Listen, here is a theology of weakness. How's that? We We live in a world that values what? Strength, power, position. That's not the biblical values. Now, it doesn't mean that you're to be milquetoast. It doesn't mean you're a doormat. But it means that God delights in expressing his power through you. You're not the powerful one. Jesus is the powerful one through you. Now, I think we need to understand when Paul starts in this dirge here of, of crushed, you know, not crushed, perplexed, driven to despair, all those kinds of things, I think his perspective on suffering here is descriptive, not prescriptive. What do I mean? It, it, mean, it, 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 it doesn't seem from the scriptures, when you look at them, that, that, that you know, we should normalize Paul's suffering and say, I have to suffer the way Paul did in order to be spiritual. That, that's not the point. Now, it is possible that some people are called to ministries and to serve in places where they will be suffering. And in some cases, they may give their lives. Uh, There are certainly other kinds of suffering that God's children go through because we are fallen people living in a fallen world. But we don't need to go looking for the suffering described here as being necessary to being spiritual. That was unique to Paul's calling to his ministry. In fact, when he was converted on the road to Damascus, and then when Ananias uh, gave him the vision from God and what he was to do, it says he was called to suffer in his ministry to the Gentiles. But he experienced the amazing truth that God's power was made perfect in his weakness. And so he could profoundly talk about God's power being involved in sustaining him in the darkest of hours. It was this presence of God and and God's power that sustained Betsy Ten Boom in a Nazi prison camp. She wrote to her sister, Corey, this, the most important part of our task will be to tell people, it will tell everyone who will listen that Jesus is the only answer to the problems that are disturbing the hearts of men and nations. We shall have the right to speak because we can tell from our experiences that his light is more powerful than the deepest darkness. How wonderful that the reality of his presence is greater than the reality of the hell about us. Betsy did not lose heart in her suffering. The power and the presence of God sustained her and was in that jar of clay. There's the third reason why Paul maintained a resolute heart, and it's this. He had a confident faith. Now, now you've got to wake up because this is the most important thing of the morning. This is what I want you to walk away with this morning. Um, look at, starting at verse 13. 
Paul writes, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with him into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now in verse 13, Paul says that he had a spirit of faith. He's talking about an attitude or an outlook of faith. And this is what shaped his thinking. This is what shapes his outlook, his ministry, his very life. This was the end that he kept in mind throughout his life, through which he viewed all of his circumstances. This is why he's able to maintain a resolute heart. And here it is. Don't miss it. His life was all wrapped up in his destination. Look again at verse 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with him into his presence. This was the compelling vision of his destiny. He could handle anything and everything that came his way. All the suffering, all the accusations, all of the hassles, all of the disappointments, all because he knew that in the end, God would raise him up and bring him into his very presence. That's why Paul didn't fight for victory. This is why he fought from victory. Because he could see the end. He lived with the end in mind. That's why he could face his accusers and his critics and his opponents and not lose heart. This is why he could persevere in the midst of trials and sufferings in his life. Uh, This is why, uh, you know, he, he didn't let these things define his ultimate outcome. He knew better than that. If you remember the first week we ever started in this letter, we were looking at Paul's perspective on suffering. And I quoted something from Eugene Peterson, and I want to bring it back here with the point that I'm trying to make, and it's this. We are able to face, acknowledge, accept, and live through suffering, for we know that it can never be ultimate. It can never constitute the bottom line. God is at the foundation, and God is at the boundaries. Paul knew that his ultimate destiny was wrapped up in the resurrection of Jesus and the fact that because Jesus was raised, he too would be raised. You see, the worst thing that could happen to Paul humanly was for him to die. The best thing that could happen to Paul divinely was that he would die. Kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? But that's the truth for every one of us. And I think he writes to the Philippians with this in mind. Um, It's kind of a dilemma. So look what he wrote. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. 
The thing that drove Paul in all of this is that he was sure of ultimate victory. The promised victory of the future he clung to in the present. And he could face whatever came his way. Because those things did not define him. They did not dictate his response. And they did not disable him emotionally or spiritually. Someone has noted the world is unimpressed with how you handle prosperity, but it will marvel at how you handle adversity and how true that is. If we are to live with the end in mind, then that promise of resurrection must be sure. And that promise of resurrection will give us courage and the perspective necessary that we do not lose heart. Paul says that such an attitude, such an overarching perspective results in much thanksgiving and it brings glory to God. And so he says again, so I do not lose heart. Now he goes on here to write about something that can bring a person down. It's something that can produce discouragement and despair. Let's look at it again, starting at verse 16. In 2 Corinthians 4. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now I think one of the things he's referring to there, certainly at the heart of it is our old self, the old Adam, our connection there. But I think he's also talking about a body that's falling apart. He's talking about aging. Yes, we're there. Um, some of you can identify with the apostle here. Listen to this and see if you agree. It's called reprise for senior citizens. I wake in the morning and dust off my wits. I get the newspaper and read the obits. And if I'm not there, then I guess I'm not dead. So I eat a good breakfast and roll back in bed. How do I know that my youth has been spent? My get up and go has just got up and went. But in spite of it all, I'm able to grin just to think of the places my getup has been. You know, it's something we face. Think of the billions of dollars every year spent on cosmetics, on fitness equipment, on diets, uh, health foods, all those things. (laughs) But here's the reality. It's all guaranteed to fail ultimately. I don't care how well you live, folks. I know where you're going to end up because I know where I'm going to end up. But here's the question for us, I think, out of Paul's writings. Do we spend as much time and effort maintaining the inner self as we do the outer self? Are you doing those things that are feeding the new self, the new, you know, the, the nature that God places within you, the new nature? Well, the old is, notice the old is still there. In fact, it's getting worse. Paul writes to the Ephesians and he says that that, that outer man, the, the man that was in Adam, he said, is, is getting worse and worse. Now, I sold, I'm going to take a little tangent here. I sold Bible libraries. One summer, I was a Yankee from the north in Iowa, and they sent me to Huntsville, Alabama to sell Bible libraries door-to-door for an entire summer when I was in college. And, you know, it's really, a lot of it was really built on the power of positive thinking and everything. And so, you know, we had all these little cute sayings that we pinned up, you know, by our mirrors and everything. One was, in every way, in every day, I'm becoming better and better. 
You know what Paul says? No, that's not true. Every day in every way, you're getting worse and worse. That's the old self. It's continuing to disintegrate. Uh, but am I building into my new self? Am I doing those things that are going to deal with the inner person that is in me now that God has placed that? Paul isn't suggesting that the body is bad, not that you shouldn't pay attention to it, that you should just ignore it, not at all. He's simply contrasting the direction that each is going and then focusing our attention on what's most important and what we need to feed in our lives. When you live by faith in Christ with a view to the end in mind, this is where we get a right perspective on troubles, difficulties, suffering. And notice the contrast that is put up there by Paul. One is on one hand, this light affliction, when you compare it to the weight of glory. The other is it's momentary when we compare it to the eternal. It's working against us versus working for us. So we need to be working on that inner person that's going to become made over into the image of God. Paul's writing with eternity's values in mind. And he's weighing the present trials and reality against future glory. And in so doing, he discovered that his trials actually worked for him. It's in those things in the unseen realm that are so important in shaping our perspective, that are most important. Paul was sure that the invisible world was true. Look what he says in verse 18 again. We look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul believed that it was necessary to penetrate into the realm of the unseen through faith. It's a matter of where our minds are focused and what becomes the center of our thought. Now, there's one more reason why Paul had a resolute heart. He had a future hope. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we're still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us, uh, who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now, Paul draws from a very familiar example to illustrate his point. Remember, what, what was Paul's avocation? He was a tent maker. So it's very logical that he would pull up this example here and he describes our physical body as a tent, a tent that is taken down in physical death. But he doesn't despair over this reality. He says we have a building from God. Now this isn't the place, this isn't our mansion that Jesus talked about in John 14. This is our glorified body that he's talking about here. A tent is a weak temporary structure. But, but there's not a lot of beauty to it. But this glorified body we'll receive will be eternal. It'll be beautiful. It will never decay. Think about that. It'll never decline. It'll never want to roll over in the morning and say, yuck. Paul speaks both about our destination and the implication of our bodies in his letter to the Philippians. Look what he says. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body 
by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, take a deep breath, because Paul gives us the big so what to everything that he's been saying. And it starts in verse 6. So, we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So that whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul says, if our tent is taken down, we need not fear. The body is only the house we're living in. And when the body goes to the grave, our spirit goes to be with the Lord. And when Christ comes, he will raise our dead bodies in glory, and body and spirit will be joined together in a glorious eternity. See, Paul says that the people of God can be found in one of two places, either in heaven or on earth. None of them is in the grave, in hell, or an inter intermediate place somewhere between heaven or hell. Paul says believers on earth are at home in the body, while believers who have died are absent from the body. Believers on earth are absent from the Lord, while believers in heaven are present with the Lord. So when we see the body, when we view the body of a loved one who's passed away, they're not there, that's a shell. That was just there for, for purposes of living life on this earth. You know, believers are in heaven. Their earthly tent has been struck, it's been taken down, and now they are in the very presence of God. And because of that confidence, Paul was not afraid of suffering and trials and even dangers. He was willing to lose his life for the sake of the gospel, if that's what was necessary, and for the ministry of the gospel. He walked by faith, not by sight. He looked at the eternal unseen, not the temporal seen. Now, here's the key to it all. Heaven for Paul was not just a destination. It was a motivation. It's what drove everything that Paul did. It was because of the promise of resurrection in the future that Paul had the courage and determination to live rightly in the present. It's because of future reward that Paul was willing to accept present suffering and difficulty all for the sake of Christ. And because of a certain future, he refused to be shaken in the present. Paul lived with the end in mind. I mean, I suggest to you, and if I can use the word, you will be successful as a Christian. You will be fruitful. You will be faithful if you will live with the end in mind. We don't talk a lot about that, do we? We've become very comfortable in our American Christianity. Uh, and we don't talk about that because maybe we don't go through a lot of difficult times. But talk to suffering people, talk to people that go through challenging times, and it is the promise of the future that will sustain them. This life is so short compared to eternity. And we need to have that end in mind to shape the way that we're thinking today. I want to close before we go to our dialogue time with something that Scott Hafman wrote in his commentary on 2 Corinthians. Look, at it'll be on the screen for you. What God has done for us in the past is the foundation of our faith not its focus. Do not live in the past. Looking back, we gain confidence in God for the future. It is this hope for the future, whether it be for this afternoon, 
as we depend on God to protect us in the midst of temptations and suffering to come, or for our deathbed as we depend on God to deliver us into his presence for all eternity. But it's that that empowers God's people not to lose confidence, but to live like Christ. That should be our motivation. Live with the end in mind. You know, in Colossians chapter 3, Paul says that we are to fix our minds on things above, where Christ is seated, where we're seated with him positionally. You know, and you'll often hear people say, well, you know, I know people, they're so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. Let me say, for most of us, that's not the problem. We're so earthly minded, we're of no heavenly good. So we need to begin with the end in mind. Live with the end in mind. Understand what it is that we're called to, because that has shaped the way then that we live and the way that we accept things that come into our lives. Well, let's pray. Lord, you know where every one of us uh, are today. You know those that are struggling, that are really experiencing difficulties in their lives, maybe with their families, maybe at work, financially, health-wise, whatever it might be. Lord, would you help fix in our minds what our real future is? And even if we must suffer, whatever suffering that may take its form in this life, might we be assured that what lies ahead is so much greater, that eternal weight of glory. Uh, Lord, would that affect the way that we live today, that we go about the work that you've called us to do tomorrow, uh, the relationships that we have, the, the work that we do, may it all be shaped by the fact that you have in mind already what our future holds. And may we have the confidence. Lord, if there's someone here that doesn't have the confidence of where they will spend eternity, may they get that settled. And would you remove the blinders of unbelief from them that they might see the glory of the light of the gospel in the face of Christ who loves us and who gave himself for us. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen.